You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again. My name is John. If I haven't met you, if you haven't met me. We're looking this morning at Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 8. We're looking at a scene in which there is not uh, one miracle, but there are two miracles, and they're interwoven together. I love this scene. Of course, I love God's Word, but this uh, this uh, scene in particular uh, is uh, very, very uh, exciting to me. I've preached on this passage once before here. I forgot to look up to find out when that was. It would be odd if it was last week or the week before, but I know that it wasn't those two weeks. Uh, this is the healing of Jairus's daughter and also the healing of a woman who has struggled with a hemorrhage, who's bleeding. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. Um, Joel has some Bibles. If uh, you do not have one this morning, Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. Uh, little theologians, two things. I want you to draw a vast distance. Okay. What does he mean by vast distance? I'm not sure what I mean. Draw a vast distance. Somehow make that work on the paper that you have been given. But you're going to have to listen to the sermon towards the very end of the sermon. I am going to tell you that this passage lets us know that Jesus travels that vast distance to come to us. Travels a vast distance to come to us. So uh, that's the task for you little theologians. Luke 8, beginning at verse 40, that's the scene that we're going to uh, unfold. But let's do this. Let's pray first. So please pray with me. Holy Spirit, would you instruct us? Would you put to use my feeble lips, my feeble mind? that it would be the word of our Heavenly Father that is proclaimed from this pulpit, a pulpit that is owned not by me, but it belongs to our Father, that it would proclaim the glory of His Son, Spirit, be with us that that would happen. In the name of our Jesus and for His kingdom's sake, amen. Again, Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40, to the end of the chapter, in fact. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of our Lord. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that there are occasions in your life when you are overcome by your circumstances and the Spirit meets you there. Sometimes in very powerful ways, significant events in your life, significant thoughts, significant impressions of the Spirit ministering to you amidst these difficult circumstances. It is almost as if the Spirit comes upon you as a wave and is able to give you comfort when things look so dark. And if you've been a Christian for any time, you know that that's not always how the Spirit works. Sometimes the Spirit works very quietly in your heart. During seasons when there are very few unpleasant circumstances in your life, but you still feel that presence of the Spirit with you, caring for you, there seems to be a variable quality in which the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And we might think similarly about the teaching of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus teaches very strong and poignantly, leaving a huge impression upon the disciples as they witness what is happening. And then sometimes he pulls them aside and he prays with them. He teaches them quietly. And I would suggest to you that this passage is a passage in which Jesus is trumpeting his authority to save, to heal, This is a loud occasion in the ministry of Jesus before his disciples. Consider that his disciples just the day before experienced a great storm on the Sea of Galilee in which they were terrified. They were afraid that they would perish over and over again. And yet Jesus saves them. And keep in mind that after that tumultuous time on the sea, they arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And in that event, Jesus delivers the man who is uh, harassed by not one demon, but a legion of demons, and the disciples witness that as well, another show of this authority of Jesus. And now they return back from whence they began to that original side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus does it again. He is showing them His authority. He is challenging them. How long after this event that we just read do you think the disciples need to uh, to sit on this and think about it, let it simmer, that they might understand what they have just witnessed in a single afternoon? Do you think it takes hours, days, weeks, months, years? Who is this man that we are with? How is he able to do these things? What does this mean? And this is one of those scenes where Jesus is teaching loudly. The disciples are witnessing something great 
and then they're witnessing something great again. I believe that any Jew looking at this passage, again, this passage or this book is addressed to a man who's likely a Gentile, a man by the name of Theophilus in Luke chapter 1. But any Jew would be able to discern from these two stories in particular that what Jesus is teaching us is that salvation requires some danger on his part, that Jesus has to do something that is actually dangerous to himself in order that this woman would be made well, would be saved, Jesus says, and that this little girl would be given life. Jesus has to lumber through a fair amount of danger before salvation can come to them. And I'm going to, over the course of the sermon, draw your mind to that to see the danger that Jesus endures for the salvation of this little girl and the salvation of this woman. I want to begin by talking in general as we look at this passage about frustrating obstacles to overcome for access to salvation. Those of you who were converted as adults might actually remember your obstacles to the gospel. The things that you had to uh, go through, or in fact it would be better, better to say be carried through that you might come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe some of those obstacles had to do with uh, your ego, with a sense of your own ability to solve your own problems, your job, your career, your knowledge, your status. Somehow these things mattered to such a degree that you thought you didn't need Jesus. Perhaps the obstacles were in the form of not just raw ego, uh, but maybe they were emotional obstacles that you felt as though that to believe in Jesus Christ, you would be giving up some emotional realities in your life. There would be friendships that would be harmed by you coming to faith in Jesus. There would be some significant ramifications to you emotionally. Perhaps you became a believer when your spouse was not a believer, or perhaps he or she is uh, still not a believer. Maybe there were certain emotional demands that proved to be obstacles to you as you came to faith. Perhaps your own rationality, your own sense of reason, your inability to understand that Jesus could be a Savior to you, and you needed to be carried through that, that you would come to see that your reason does not define the work of Jesus, and perhaps it was simply just a fear of any God, never mind a God with a capital G, a fear of God, what that God might know about you, what that God might demand of you, frustrating obstacles to overcome for access to salvation. And I think that that is an important way to look at these uh, two narratives. You see, what Luke is doing is he's sharing the narratives as they unfolded. That is, Jesus is uh, approached by a man by the name of Jairus. But uh, before that conversation can finish, there is another conversation that happens with this uh, woman. And so we have these two narratives that are interlocked together. And we begin to ask, how do these two narratives compare? How do they contrast? And I think the best way, the easiest uh, way to compare them, to see the similarities in them, is to look at these two individuals, Jairus and this woman, and ask, what were their obstacles to salvation? Let's begin first with Jairus. He's an elder in the synagogue. 
He is likely a respected citizen of the village. We're not told where exactly they are. But Jairus is someone who would be respected. But notice that Jairus, who is a man who has a significant status, he very likely is a man of means, and yet he's powerless. Nothing that Jairus has access to will do anything to help his little girl. Age 12 is significant. Age 12 is, it may sound ridiculous to us, but in the ancient Near East, age 12 was when a woman was coming into her own. Of course, we don't think of a 12-year-old as a woman. Even Jesus calls her a little girl. But to be so close to being an adult and then to die... Scholars say that infant mortality in first century Judaism was likely as high as 40%, some say even higher. But for a girl to make it through her infancy and to die at 12, wow. It's a shame, but Jairus can do nothing. No money, no status, nothing. He's utterly powerless. And not only is he powerless to help his little girl, he's emotionally vulnerable. This is a particular point of weakness. Luke tells us that this is his only daughter. In Mark's gospel, Mark uses more affectionate terminology to describe the relationship between Jairus and this little girl. She is his little daughter. In Mark's gospel, even Jesus calls her a little girl. Do you believe that your Savior is able to care for you even amidst intimate family tragedies? We have already seen in Luke's Gospel, Jesus' care for a widow whose only son has died. And in Luke chapter 9, we're going to see that a father is very troubled because his son is harassed by a demon. And Jesus helps that son Jesus seems to love to care for us when we are emotionally vulnerable. For intimate pain, Jesus is there, and that is certainly the case with Jairus. But Jairus also, it would seem, has intellectual reservations. At the end of this scene, it is odd that there is laughter. Look at the end of this passage that we read and try and discern who it is that's laughing. Who do you think is laughing? I can't imagine that Jairus is laughing or that his wife is laughing. But the mourners are there. There would be hired mourners and they wouldn't be invited until there was a confirmation that the person is really dead and this little girl is really dead and the mourners have been invited to be with the family, to lead them in their mourning. And yet even in an, in an august environment like that, there's laughter. Who's laughing? Well, we don't know if it's Jairus or if it's his wife. But surely Jairus had to have reservations himself. Surely it's too late. Luke is very clear in verse, 20, in verse 49 that his servant has come to him and said, Don't trouble the teacher. She's dead. Surely there were intellectual presuppositions of Jairus. It wouldn't allow him to entertain even the possibility that his dead little girl could be made alive again. And we're told explicitly that Jairus is afraid. Look in verse 50. 
Jesus says, do not be afraid. What do you think he's afraid of? His servant has just come to him and said that your daughter has died. And then verse 50 says that Jairus is afraid. What do you think he's afraid of? Do you think he's afraid of being a husband to a wife who's just endured this tragedy? Do you think he's afraid to contemplate his own life without this little girl? What is he afraid of? It's easier to see the fear in the woman. I think maybe there are some here who have felt the similar hurt that Jairus is feeling, and you know what his fear is like. Luke doesn't explain. But his little girl is dead, and it's the worst news he could imagine hearing. And I'm sure he struggles to think of what life is going to be like without her. And Jesus says, do not fear. Let me stop. It's anticlimactic, isn't it? And look then at the woman. Is the woman powerless like Jairus is powerless? He has, he has no ability to use his status to bring health to his little girl. But look, this woman also is powerless. It would appear as though that she is struggling with a uterine hemorrhage. It would also appear that she's wealthy, having been able to pay physician bills for 12 years' time, seeking for health. She seems to have some means. You know, one historian suggests that there would be many possible remedies that she could try. I find that to be very interesting, that scholars know that uh, there are ways that people would seek in order to be healed from such a malady as this, wine mixed with latex from rubber trees, potassium alum. A variety of crocuses would be used, wine mixed with onions. How interesting that she could spend 12 years of her life looking for a solution and find nothing. And what do we see? We see that she is absolutely powerless. Nothing that she can do. She too has an emotional vulnerability not unlike that of Jairus. Jairus has to do with his intimate connection with his daughter, but her emotional vulnerability is that she has a continuous flow that leads to a continuous social rejection, that leads to continuous embarrassment, that leads to continuous spiritual uncleanness. We might think that it's a physical malady, but she knows better. This impacts her place in the world, her place among her family, among the people that she lives with in her village. There's an intellectual presupposition that she seems to have made. She has tried medical remedies, Luke tells us, but we're not told if she has tried spiritual remedies. We're not told if she has tried to gain access to the temple, forcibly perhaps, because she is unclean and wouldn't be accepted. But she has tried physician after physician after physician, Luke tells us in verse 43. We wonder why Luke is narrowing it down to physicians. Has she tried ministers, elders? Luke tells us physicians. Maybe she has reservations about a spiritual means to her health. Like Jairus, she struggles with personal powerlessness, emotional vulnerability, perhaps intellectual presuppositions, but surely fear. She attempts to hide herself, we're told, but she's discovered in verse 27, and she's trembling, and she falls down before Jesus, and she confesses everything. 
Jairus didn't seem to fall down before Jesus in that same way. Crying out for help, Jairus falls. She cries out for forgiveness for what she has done. She has sneaked up behind him. And she's been discovered and she confesses everything. And now we are left thinking, what will Jesus do? What will he do? What do they have in common, these two? That Jesus would focus his uh, authoritative ministry on these two in particular. What do they have in common? And what they have in common is their dire neediness. By the world's estimation, they may have some things. Certainly that's true for Jairus. But by their own estimation, they know that they have nothing. They are powerless. They are vulnerable. They have objections to the ministry of Jesus and they are afraid. All of those things connect these two figures. And I would say to you this morning that I hope that's how you feel as well. Right here. I hope that you know what that powerlessness is like. That vulnerability. I hope you know your own rational objections. And I hope that you have a sense of fear before God. I hope that's the case if you're here this morning and you've not professed faith in Jesus Christ. Because as soon as you see that you are absolutely and utterly empty, then you begin to smell the sweet aroma of salvation that comes through only one means. And if you're here as a Christian, I want you to know these feelings, that you would know that you are saved by grace, that you would continue to remind yourself that you are not saved by anything that you have done. Praise be to God that you are powerless. Praise be to God that you are vulnerable before this majestic master who has saved you. Praise be to God that you understand that there are things about him that you can't wrap your mind around. Praise be to God that you have a proper fear and reverence for this God. May those things never leave you if they leave you as a Christian. I fear for your sanctification. What it means to be a Christian is to see that you have nothing that you are empty, and that Jesus has everything. Let's look at Jesus, shall we? You see, there's one larger obstacle, a looming obstacle, a taller obstacle, an obstacle far larger than any that Jairus experiences, far larger than any that the woman experiences. And for that great obstacle, there is one who can overcome it. Understand that in order for Jesus to help this woman, in order for Jesus to help this man, he has to wreck himself. In order to help this woman, he has to become unclean for her sake. In order to help Jairus, he has to be unclean for Jairus' sake. Jesus is touched by a woman who continually bleeds. And that uncleanness touches him and makes him unclean, and it bars him from the temple. In order to heal Jairus, or Jairus' daughter, he has to walk into a room of death. Luke is very clear. Jesus walks into the very room of death, and he must become himself unclean. It is interesting, isn't it, that the word power shows up in this passage, that Jesus would say aloud to the crowd that's gathered around him that he feels the absence of power. He has to lose something in order for there to be salvation to this woman 
and to this little girl. And what Jesus loses, he loses completely. He loses everything. He has to give up his relationship with his heavenly father in order to save. This is the one who is rejected on the cross. My father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has to give up everything. This is the vast distance that Jesus must traverse for the salvation of this girl. He says to her, touch me with your uncleanness. In order to save the 12-year-old little girl, he has to go and touch her and be present with her uncleanness. The Apostle Paul says that, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Christian, addressing you in particular, do you believe that Jesus had to traverse danger for your salvation, to be forsaken by his heavenly Father for your salvation, to take your filth, your sin upon himself, to die for you at the cross. He had to endure suffering for you because of you. You did that, and I did that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why this woman? And why Jairus? They're filled with pathetic need. They have absolutely nothing. We get a snapshot of them at their very lowest moment. But Paul says this, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says that he will boast all the more gladly of his weaknesses. Christian, do you boast of your weaknesses? If not, do you think that your Savior did not have to suffer for you to inflict himself with harm, to take upon himself uncleanness before his heavenly Father? Have you fooled yourself into thinking that? I would ask everyone here this morning, what obstacles have you brought with you to this place? Are you tasting powerlessness especially this morning. Bad news with regards to your job, your inability to solve that riddle. Finances not where you would like them to be. Relationships not where you would like them to be. Are you tasting powerlessness this morning? Do you feel emotionally fragile this morning? Are you frayed on the insides? Are there reservations that you cannot shake and you walk through those doors to worship with those reservations? I don't know if this Jesus really exists. Are you here this morning with those reservations? Are you here this morning with fear and unbelief running through your veins? Are you that kind of a person? You know this is a place for you. It is a place For this woman that Jesus heals, it is a place for Jairus. When we look in this passage, we ought to come to a point where we ask a very awkward question. What's the role that the little girl plays? 
Perhaps the best illustration in this passage is not necessarily the woman who is struggling with uh, a hemorrhage, continuous bleeding for 12 years' time. And Jesus says to her, and your, your faith has made you well, literally, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. A beautiful picture of salvation, the woman having done nothing but Jesus' power making her well. And a wonderful picture of salvation is that of Jairus who comes and he admits that he has no ability to make his daughter well and that her death would be, in his mind, an insurmountable pain. And Jesus tells him, do not be afraid. She will be well. She will be saved. Wonderful pictures of what it looks like to be a Christian, someone who has done nothing for their salvation, but someone who has everything in Christ Jesus. But what about the little girl? Why is she there? Jesus, when he sets his face to Jerusalem, is going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to have an awkward conversation with Nicodemus in which he says to this Pharisee that salvation is an act of God. What you need is you need to be born again, born from, abo- born from above. How can that happen? It was Peter who was in that room of death who saw that little girl raised from the dead. And Peter says this in his, in his pastoring ministry, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Maybe she's the best picture of salvation. Utterly helpless. Utterly helpless. There are not two illustrations of the beautiful picture of salvation here. There are three illustrations of it. If you're here this morning as a Christian, you know what I mean by that. As you grow in in faith, as you grow in your understanding of who Christ is, you begin to look back in your life and you see your sin more and more loudly and you wonder, how could I ever have been saved? Why would He come to me in my weakness? But He has. The best way to understand your salvation is to be told, you have been born again. A new life has been implanted in you. If you're not a believer this morning, Jairus and this woman are especially instructive to you. Are you empty? Are you powerless? Come to Jesus. He is your salvation. And He will traverse that distance, coming close to you in all of your filth, and despicableness, and taking it upon himself that you might have peace. How long do you think the disciples had to ponder these events? Their entire earthly lives. Their entire earthly lives. Praise be to God who saves us, as we have absolutely nothing to save ourselves. We want to uh, invite some folks to come forward to become members this morning. Let me uh, pray for that, and then we will uh, we'll receive uh, a few uh, two families and uh, my own little girl. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us that hard news that we have nothing, nothing, and yet you have come to us and given us everything, even peace with you. We thank you, Father, for doing all things necessary for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.